For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick, here to talk about the defense from the Week 18 game against the Steelers. Uh, frustrating loss again, six in a row. Here to join me with it. Glad to have Jason Smith. Happy to have a friendly face here to talk football with after a very frustrating season. Ken, I'm happy to be here too. Thanks a lot for having me on your show once again. And uh, it's always a pleasure just to talk things out and hash things out no matter how it goes. So, Once again, the, the Ravens had the lead in this one and they let it get away from them. It wasn't a big lead, but 10 to 3 driving again, looking like they'd put that game away at 10 to 6. 
um, and they could not finish it off. We'll talk a little bit about what what came before that. Uh, you know, a, a, another thing that really has been tough this year is just the injuries have continued all the way to the final whistle. Uh, the secondary despite the fact they have nobody left standing for all intents and purposes, had two more injuries yesterday with Young and Westry going down during the game and being forced to have Brandon Stevens move to corner. It really it really has been all year. And I think that uh, when Gus and J.K. and Marcus got hurt early on, and that was obviously their, their three very important players, and people hear about the Ravens are hit with injuries, they just go back to training camp. But, it, but like you say, Ken, unless you follow the team, you don't realize – it's been every week. I mean, I, I can think of maybe two weeks where the team actually got healthier, got some people back, but mostly it's been plugging holes all year. So it wasn't just a tired narrative, I guess is what I'm getting at. The The injury situation was real from start to finish. Yeah. The, the Bowser injury, we started to see some differences in terms of how that affected the team too. And the, the Ravens are now without a Sam linebacker and they were for the uh, after Bowser's injury in this game, and it really showed up. So Ferguson was dropping to cover. Houston was dropping to cover. McPhee was dropping to cover. I mean, those are pure rush linebackers. Uh, Adafi Owe, he could, be, he could be a Sam linebacker someday. He needs some technique probably, but he's certainly got the speed and athleticism for it, but he's hurt. And Dalen Hayes is who the guy who they expected to be the backup Sam for the entire year. Uh, with him gone the entire year, obviously Bowser has taken up a much bigger snap load. And the, the possibility of this injury stretching into 2022 is by far the worst thing coming out of the Steelers game. By far, by far. I mean, Bowser, not only has he been very good, but he's been consistently very good. He took on a larger snap role. Like you said, he's really the only true Sam. Uh, I do believe Dalen Hayes has that skills, but we, it's a lost season for him. We don't know what to expect from him at the NFL level. So that's not someone you can go into next season saying, okay, well, we have Dale and Hayes. We're going to be fine. I mean, that could be the case, but you can't count on it. Um, Achilles injuries are tricky. You know, with Justice Hill, you know, I feel pretty good about J.K. and Gus coming back. But off those Achilles, we saw with Suggs, they can linger and it can really take a couple of years for you to get back to full speed. So, man, tough situation with Bowser. Definitely the worst thing to come out of yesterday. Right. We don't know what the current situation. I do not believe the team has been specific about always foot injury. But, you know, the term Liz Frank always comes to everybody's mind when you hear about a foot injury. Uh, it's not an ankle injury. It's a foot injury. They would normally, re- you know, refer to a joint instead of a, you know, a foot foot uh, and foot really sounds that does not sound good. So um, wouldn't surprise me if that requires some offseason surgery. The one thing I'll say about Hayes is that I'm happy that he is where he is in the rehab process because since he got hurt, um, I imagine he's he'd already come back to practice with the team. And so it's quite possible he'll be at least in position to get good off-season positional training. And that's what he really needs, I, I expect. I, I think he needs to learn how to play Sam at the NFL level, find his own coach for that, find that individual, what, whoever this is, the Sam guru, a la uh, Josh Harris for Lamar Jackson. That's the guy they need to be directing Dalen Hayes to. Obviously, a very bright guy. You've heard him speak. You know that. Uh, is a guy who I think probably could make big strides forward there. Away, unfortunately, is not going to have that same, um, likely, not going to have that same uh, opportunity this offseason. He's probably going to be rehabbing that foot injury, or he may be for, for a good portion of it. It's, it's a position. I look at the entire defense too, Ken, where we kind of, I mean, we need one of everything mode. 
just yeah. be, just because of the uncertainty surrounding so many positions and quite frankly the need to upgrade certain positions so man bowser again the, you know not that we were you know had to add a bunch of linebackers outside linebackers to this team we were already uh you know with mcphee's future uh ferguson's future even mm-hmm. houston's f- future even we it was already a position that we were looking to add to, but now specifically we need someone who can drop back in coverage. And, uh, and that's a tough ask for any young player. It's expensive as heck. If you want to go free agency and I'm not sure how many guys fit the bill. So it's a, it's an an issue already going into 2022. Yeah. Very, very few NFL players can really play Sam linebacker and none can cover at the level that Bowser can. He's absolutely the best in the entire NFL. And to lose him would be would be really tragic. The Ravens do have some ability and obviously they have a, you know, a scheme that is Sam linebacker based and outside linebacker drop based in terms of their blitzing. So they probably do a fair amount of in camp teaching of these players, but it's going to really take some 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 focus outside. Obviously, we've got a 2022 focus here, but we also want to talk about the Steelers game in particular. Uh, the frustrating thing to me about this was the losing the turnover battle. And that's just for this game. I was kind of suspending my disbelief for a B movie here to hope that the Ravens could come back and have a chance to make the playoffs. And we saw what was going on in Jacksonville and the, and the big upset there. And I thought, Oh, well maybe. And, and uh, the Ravens obviously had a chance to win that game, but they had three good opportunities to get turnovers in this game. And they gave away three or some might say four good opportunities to the Steelers to, to get turnovers. And the Steelers converted all their opportunities. You know, basically TJ Watt knocked the ball free from Huntley on the, on the botch snap after Huntley picked it up. Uh, and then we, we had the uh, uh, two interceptions, neither of which was an astounding athletic play. Both are decent athletic plays. I think we'd say. I would say so. I would say that they were uh, not entirely difficult, you know, uh, not high athletic plays. It was it was there for him. I mean, Tyler Huntley didn't have a very good game. Let's just say it like that. Any yeah. kind of help. And um, I was looking, Ken, um, you know, one of the things I noticed is, you know, this defense was put up against the wall early. They they were on the field for the fifth time with uh, a little more than three minutes into the second quarter. <laughs> so. You're talking about you. You know, you can go a whole half and only be on the field only have five possessions. They had five possessions uh, on the field for the fifth time. Eleven twenty-six to go in quarter two when the Steelers took over. So it was a lot to ask from this defense, and and really, I think that they played well overall. Um, aside from, of course, not capitalizing on the turnovers, which has been a theme all year. And uh, I had a conversation with someone about this, saying, "Well, you know, this is a luck-based." You know, turnovers are luck based. And yes, I do agree with that. But even if you were just regular unlucky, you probably have twice as many turnovers as the Ravens have. To me, it's more of a talent and a stylistic hole that we have on this team. Yeah, it's a it's a big problem. And and I would I would say playmakers on defense are an enormous need for the team, but but Stevens drop is something really any player should have had. Uh, it, the I'm, I'm less concerned. I thought it was a, would have been a highly athletic, high-value interception for Clark to make his. And sure. frankly, of the three turnovers, that was the one where the least was on the line. In fact, probably of all six turnovers, that was the one where the least was on the line in terms of points because it was on a third down play anyway. They're going to have to punt. They, they would have had the ball probably at around midfield, and so they get the ball at the 35. 
you know, I, I, it's a difference, but it's not as much of a difference. The Stevens play, that was going to start the Ravens on the Pittsburgh side of the table. Instead, they started the 14. You know, it, the, the uh, interception in the end zone killed off three, three plus points. Uh, was it was it five points? Was it four points? I don't know, but three plus points, and that certainly was the was the difference in the game. Uh, and these these plays as a group just unacceptable. The Ravens need to get back to turnover based football, and they need to be doing it on both sides of the ball well. This was not a good season for any Ravens quarterback. It was definitely not a good season for Huntley in terms of of making mistakes with the football. Uh, but Jackson wasn't doing well when he was in his four game slide before he got hurt either. It's true. I mean, Lamar, remarkable, um, remarkable plays that he made through the first part of this season. But uh, once defense is adjusted, I think that both he and uh, the personnel around him and the whole rhythm of the offense was thrown off. And um, I mean, you can only be bailed out by Lamar's sheer talent so many times. (laughs) I went back and Ken, I just put together my Lamar highlight video for the year, which I'd encourage people who enjoy watching Lamar. It's 20 minutes long. Um, of just play after play. And I'm telling you, Ken, you could click on the seven-minute mark or the 10-minute mark, and it's still great play after great play Mm -hmm. by Lamar. So he's making those splash plays, but the consistency and the rhythm of this offense was really off the whole year. So defensive show, I'm sorry. That's okay, but your show is on Lamar is chronological in terms of the plays are in order as they occurred throughout the season? No, sir. They are basically, I try to mix it up and put my favorite plays or the best plays first. And then by, you know, by the end, um, you know, you're getting to your regular good plays. But uh, stunning, like I said, even seven minutes into it, you're seeing some really high level quarterbacking plays, uh, both with his arms and his legs. So, you know, I'm not so worried about Lamar as I am the offensive rhythm as a whole and getting everybody on the same page. But, um, you know, they made a tough one, the defense in this one. You you look at some of the numbers, uh, the defense really held up well. You know, I'm looking at 5.2 yards per pass attempt they gave up. You take that every time. That's a win. 2.6 yards per carry. And uh, the running backs were worse. Uh, Yeah, under two for the running backs, I think. Right, under two. Chase Claypool, I think, converted three third downs or three first downs, excuse me, uh, you know, running those sweeps for the Steelers. So, um, again, it was just, you know, an aside, Ken, I felt like this game was going to end in a tie. I really did, just the way the whole season uh-huh. was going. It just felt like, okay, both teams eliminated with a tie. That sounds about right, especially as it uh, trickled into overtime. Okay, I, w- I want to get back to the to, to the to the third downs and late in this game, but I want to talk about the, the the tie component first because the clock management in overtime was a was a funny thing. The Steelers fans get on Mike Tomlin for like nobody's business for game management issues. Now the Ravens fans get on Harbaugh too, but largely speaking, the Ravens fans don't know. They don't know what they're talking about when they're criticizing Harbaugh on fourth down decisions. Now, I will say Harbaugh is not as aggressive as the pure analytics people would be, the pure mathematicians of, of football. They're going to tell you go much more often. Harbaugh is extremely aggressive for an NFL coach. And Ravens fans normally say, why don't we what, what do we have Justin Tucker for? You know, you hear that a lot and you hear a lot of why do we keep going on fourth down? Why are you chasing the points? Well, because. It's more expected points. That's the reason. That's the that's the central reason for why you do that early in a football game. But I will say this: the clock management and over overtime. If the Steelers fans had complaints about Mike Tomlin, they were completely correct in this one. They they went to the line of scrimmage. I think it was two oh six to go, and it was not the kind of egregious error that it could have been. But they kneeled the ball with two oh six to go. 
in this game, it was mentioned several times on the broadcast, and it certainly should have been known to the, both the Steelers and the Ravens' sidelines that a tie did no one any good. There is no value in running the clock out on your opponent if, there, if a tie does nobody any good. So you don't kneel in that situation. If you're ready to kick, and, and the Steelers obviously were, they could have gone for the touchdown if they thought that was a, you know, a better play. But if the Steelers are ready to kick and take a high percentage shot at it, go ahead and take it on that down. And, and, uh, and, and you know, there's no reason at all to kneel to get to the two-minute warning. You're not disadvantaging the Ravens in some way. And in fact, the Ravens, had they gotten the football back after a missed kick, would have given the Steelers exactly what they wanted in terms of playing four down football, fourth and 20, they would have gone for it. You know, they, they, there was no point in them kicking at that point. So I, I you know, very bad clock management by Steelers ended up only costing them six seconds. Uh, I wish it would have cost them a playoff opportunity. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I agree with, I agree with you. The only thing that I, that I could say, cause I thought about this in my head too, is maybe they wanted more time on the clock to say, okay, well, the Ravens are going to go for broke here too, because a tie does them no good. So if we miss this field goal and we give the Ravens enough time, maybe Huntley throws us another one. That was the only outside of the box explanation I could come up with. No, that, that was, but that's the reason to leave more time on, not, not take any time off. Right. That's right. To add more yeah. time on. We had, yeah. That's with the, the kneel, value. Yeah. yeah. The kneel, the kneel down. So I, I was, I was spinning it in my head too, and ultimately couldn't come up with a reason. So, yeah. Well, I, I think what happened is at the two minute warning, I think Tomlin got an education from his support staff over the headset and they didn't try two more kneels there because I think if Tomlin was if the sound had suddenly gone off in his headset, I think Tomlin would have called for two more. Needles. He may have. And he may have. Also, uh, very then, strange, I, though, considering it's week 18 and you know exactly what's on the line. You know no. exactly the scenarios. This isn't the midseason where it's a gut call. I mean, your season's on the line. So, yeah, that that was pretty funny. It has nothing to do with the Ravens. But I've seen that from Tomlin, too, just as a yeah. casual observer. Like, if you, we want to compare Harbaugh's time management to Tomlin's challenges, the whole nine yards, I, I feel good about my coach compared to, to Mike Tomlin. Of course, there's a lot more that goes into coaching sure. than just that. But, um, but yes, I can see why that he would frustrate Steelers fans. And Harbaugh's aggressiveness does not bother me. Now, if I was a Chargers fan, with uh, Brandon Staley, that would bother me a little bit. I mean, he pretty much gave away the game in Baltimore, and then we saw some of that uh, in the Sunday night game. But um, Harbaugh's aggressiveness, other than um, having Justin Tucker try to fake a field goal for 12 yards in the Super Bowl, I've been pretty calm. But uh, but yes, yeah, that was that was an interesting interesting call in the Super Bowl. It did lead to the touchdown at the end of the half. So they it forced did. a punt from from deep in their own end zone. Um, the, uh, the 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 fact that the Steelers were watching the Chargers and Raiders in oh, the mercy. night game <laughs> that was freaking hilarious. I will just say, and I feel sorry for that poor Steelers fan who got all that airtime. And I think it was just one guy they found when wearing a Steelers jersey at SoFi. He kept going back to. <laughs> he was my he was my star of the show, Ken. Because yes. you know, at this point in the season, I mean, I, I have to be honest with you. My my overall hopes kind of 
were just slowly let yeah. down with every injury. And then the Marlin one really took me down a couple of levels. And then when I saw Lamar limp and that took me down to, okay, man, the, you know, let's be honest here. The chances of us regrouping, getting everybody on the same page and, and making it to a Super Bowl is looking pretty grim. And I'm a anything can happen kind of guy getting the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And that's usually my mindset, but it just, you know, the world was trying to tell us something throughout this season. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that that game was so close and went into overtime, that gave me like one last joy in the season. Was I was really uh, right. I, it was really fun to watch. I was genuinely interested and kept bothering my wife. She was tired of hearing it because, you know, she don't want to watch Ben Roethlisberger uh, succeed. She, you know, she's cussing him out there in the game. She doesn't want to hear anything to do with uh, the Steelers, but I was enjoying it myself. It's, it's one of these situations that is going to change the way the Week 18 scheduling works. They can't have that happen again. So they're going to have to have a formulaic set of rules that, hey, if you're involved in such and such a game, then you can't, you can't be on the Sunday night game. So they're going to have to play all the games at 425, all the games at 1 o'clock, figure out how that goes. They may even have to do some things to force 10 a.m. games on the West Coast so that one conference – plays their games at one and the other conference plays their games at four. And that, that wouldn't TV would not be real happy with that because of the, you know, the dual things, but they can switch up whether they're showing a uh, NFC or AFC game on the, by network. They've already done that some this year with three or four games, switching, switching to the other network. So they can, they can do that and they can, you know, have week 18 be a, we're going to follow the playoffs week. Um, But they can't have this happen again where they have, uh, you know, obviously unfair competitive advantages created by the we can both shoot for a tie component of this or anything else that might be known. I mean, it's bad enough if the Ravens had been playing the night game against the Steelers, they'd already been eliminated. Now, I, I have 97 percent confidence that the Ravens would have played as hard as possible because they played everybody. They, you know, it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, hate them. You know, you just you just want to make sure they don't make it. But. I wouldn't. I would not want that sort of a competitive advantage occur. To hey, this is you know three spots of draft pick or whatever it was. I don't, I don't honestly know. Versus we can keep the Steelers out of the playoffs. And and by the way, also make the Steelers have worse draft picks all the way through the draft. Tough situation. I wish I, I had more to add to that because I don't. Maybe they can take advantage of Saturdays or take more advantage of Saturdays. I don't. I don't know. I mean, TV rights is is a is a, is a. Uh, you know, way above my pay grade here, but yes, it was, I enjoyed it for last night, but you're right. The future problems. I'm not sure if the, the tie, you know, made it more difficult for the NFL or, um, or what, but, uh, but yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I, I must admit. If you're playing those games at the same time, the tie would have only been a problem because their game lasted longest. And I don't think you can blame the teams for that, but if you when by not playing the games at the same time, they knew exactly what they needed. And, you know, the, 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 the Raiders knew, well, all we have to do is kneel out the clock and, and we're both in. Now, I could see if you're, the, if you're the Raiders, you don't want the Chargers in. And I could see why you might want the higher seed as well, just in case you get the AFC championship at home by getting the, what, they get the five seed or the four seed? Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think so. Yeah, the five seed, five seed. Mm-hmm. So they could, have, they could have still had a chance to play the AFC championship at home uh, if, if they had, uh, you know, tried to win the game i guess they had a little something on the line but um but they uh uh you know they they also had a nice easy way into the playoffs 
Anyway, I'm, I, enough about that. Let's talk about this game a little <laughs> bit. Because w- what happened with the Ravens uh, on the key downs late was what was not happening early. They they uh, played very effective dime defense. And for those of you who are just, just tuning into this show for the first time or, or uh, you know, I've never heard me talk on the topic, dime defense is the Ravens' primary pass defense. So when it's third and medium or longer, they have their dime defense on the field, meaning six defensive backs. Uh, usually three safeties and three corners. That's what it was in this game. They only really had three corners available to them, but for most of the game. Uh, And uh, they use that to replace inside linebackers on the field and otherwise get pass rushers with them. And uh, Chris Board is typically the only inside linebacker that goes with that group. Well, anyway, they had nine consecutive successes for the dime defense Uh, of not allowing a single conversion on any such plays. They weren't all third downs. There were some plays at the end of the half where they had first and second down, but um, they they were zero first downs allowed, uh, all pass plays on those. But then starting at Q4, 557, things started to unwind for the dime defense. And it was just a – it was a nightmare of dinky little passes gone awry uh, and and, and being thrown to exactly the right spot in, in some cases. It was odd because it, it seems like I've seen this with multiple games, not only versus us, but just Steelers offense in general, where eventually they wear you out almost like a running attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot. They force you to tackle the tackling. I mean, the Ravens gave great effort in tackling, but the tackling started to fall apart there yeah. uh, during those third and four down, fourth down that one fourth down conversion. I mean, the, the Steelers ended up six of 17 on third down, one on one on fourth down. But on those last two scoring drives for the Steelers, they converted four third downs and one fourth down, which was really the difference in the game. Yeah, I could go through the, the seven plays here really quickly. So Q4, 557, they had third and nine. They got a pressure on the play, but Roethlisberger threw a 20-yard pass to McLeod. That was a big con- recurring story from this game was the Ravens getting pressure and still allowing 10-plus yard plays. And it showed up in the in the pass rush stats that Roethlisberger had what I call an inverted game, meaning he was better under pressure than he was with ample time and space. Very rare, by the way, but it happened last week also against the Ravens defense. It's it's very much Roethlisberger. He's very comfortable in those situations through years of experience. A lot of older quarterbacks uh, tend to fold a little bit. They don't want to get hit. But I think with this being Roethlisberger's possibly final game and in Baltimore and all the cameras on him, and I mean he's not one to shy away from the uh, from attention. That he wanted to hang in there and make some plays, and, and he was able to do so, especially over the middle. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the next opportunity was a third and six at Q4-428. Roethlisberger threw to Fryermuth for an 11-yard play. You mentioned the missed tackles. This was a missed tackle by Queen. Not his only missed tackle of the game, but this was probably his most severe. Kind of overran the play as much as missing the tackle. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, you know, a, a, what could have been a third and uh, a stop, probably only a yard short of the stick, so they probably still would have gone for it, uh, became a first-down conversion. That missed tackle by Queen, and you, I guess you're going to get to one uh, on Najee Harris. Mm-hmm. Those two really stood out for me. Um, you know, splash plays and missed tackles, Patrick Queen for sure. Q4 048. So now we're down to the final drive in regulation after the Ravens have tied the game. So the Ravens left a little bit too much time on the clock. I, I was very fearful that Roethlisberger was going to be able to drive him at a field goal range on this, this drive. But on third and four, Roethlisberger threw to Fryer move by the right sideline. 
It was a three-yard pass, and they had the matchup they wanted because Ferguson was at the same linebacker, lined up opposite Fryermuth. He had to drop and try and cover him. That is not Jalen Ferguson's game. Jalen Ferguson is a bull rusher. He's a big man, not speedy. But uh, he was somewhat close, but it was really Stevens flying up from the deep third coverage on that side. I think that was where he was, deep third on that side, to make that play, which was really spectacular. Stevens made two plays in a row, the first to hold hold him to six yards and bring up this this third and four, and then the second to knock him out a yard short. And I expected them to be going for it on fourth and one. All of a sudden, they're in punt formation, just a strange situation uh, to see. It was another Tomlin decision right there. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised at that one, especially in, in today's NFL. You see it so often. And I know they weren't getting anything on the ground, but again, their specialty is this quick passing game. And you look at Jimmy Smith playing the entire game. This is deep in the game now. Mm-hmm. Um, was Westry out at that? At Westry was out yeah, at Stevens that point. Stevens was in the game at corner. So yep. Stevens was in a corner. Um, yes, I, I could have saw uh, a short pass to Claypool or Deontay Johnson like they normally do in that, that situation. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit of a head scratcher for, for me. Go, you have another yeah. one? No, lots of opportunities. Yes, let's continue. Um, so uh, OT 518 now. On third and seven, we had McPhee, Bull, and Shed, the, the center, Hassenauer. By the way, Hassenauer had a terrible game. Uh, he got steamrolled by the Ravens' interior line, mostly by Brandon Williams in this game. But but everybody who had a shot at him pretty much took care of him in this game. Uh, got a QH on the play, but Roethlisberger threw to Fryermuth, uh for PL14. Uh very tight coverage by Tony Jefferson on the play. It looked like Tony Jefferson pulled his hands back. I guess he was a fearful of getting a, P- a DPI call or something. But the ball, you know, went through. I was surprised it got through to the receiver and uh, ended up for a 14-yard completion on that left sideline. My heart goes out to Tony Jefferson on that play because he played it just about as good as you can. I'm not, I'm not sure what happened at the uh, at the catch point either, but you know when you're looking for breakdowns, a lot of these plays, you know, you talk about Ferguson just not athletic enough, even though he had the good idea. That was a really good play by Tony Jefferson and just a better throw and catch, uh, Roethlisberger and uh, and Fryermuth. I have this feeling if that play had not been complete. And I, 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 I apologize for the cynicism in advance that we would have seen a uh, rough of the passer flag on McPhee. It was a fairly late QH, but it was the kind of drive extender I fear, I would fear for the NFL's uh, uh, reputation as a fair and reputable organization if that had come out. I, I hear you. I hear you. It's a, uh, it's it's you know it's a funny. It's human nature. You see makeup calls. You see things of that nature. And uh, and yes, you always wonder. Those late flags are a bad look, no matter when they happen or whether they're correct or not. It's just like uh, well, the ref saw the result and then wanted to change the result. Is natural human nature. Optics at uh, very worst. I mean, at the very best, bad optics. The worst, much much uh, sinister, like you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, overtime, 328, third and nine now. So the Ravens have another good chance to stop them on the overtime drive. So, by the way, the Ravens getting all these good third and six, third and eight, third and nine opportunities to stop the other teams that they have not been getting in recent weeks. A lot of recent weeks, it's the problem has been there's too many third and twos. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's not setting the Ravens up. But they got a third and nine. Um, Jimmy Smith completely beaten on a whip route. And, again, this is Jimmy Smith is who he is at this age. He's not a slot corner. Deontay Johnson put a slot move on him. 
uh, got outside into the, into the flat, and Jimmy Smith slipped on the wet, wet field a little bit, uh, caught the ball for one plus ten. So it's not like this was a complete, you make the play, Deontay, uh, after the catch, and, uh, and no one was able to come up and, and secure that tackle before he had the first down. Yeah, just a stylistic mismatch right there between Deontay Johnson's quickness and where Jimmy is at this point in his career. If it's a, a tight end, I still feel comfortable with Jimmy yeah. covering him. Or a bigger receiver who can't cut, I still feel comfortable even at Jimmy's age, this state and stage of the season, everything in his, his career. Um, but yes, Deontay Johnson, too much too much quicks. I mean, it's, it's just not a matchup that's favorable, which goes back to why I was surprised that they punted on fourth down. Yeah. Uh, OT232, they get the they get them to third and eight again. So it didn't take long. They get yet another third and eight opportunity. Roethlisberger passed for Johnson. And this, this time, Johnson over the middle of the field dropped the football with Seymour trailing in coverage. Looked to me like it would have been a first down or very close had he caught the ball. I don't think anybody was going to tackle Johnson short of the six unless Johnson made some kind of a mistake trying to ignore the line to gain to try and make a bigger play. But uh, but it looked like he was probably going to have a first down there, and uh, uh, and the ball was dropped to bring up the, that big fourth and eight play, mm-hmm. and of course that next fourth and eight, Ferguson bowled the right guard Trey Turner for pressure. Houston beat the left tackle Joe Haig. He Haig actually bumped Roethlisberger as he threw the football. At least that's the way it appeared to me. Um, and Roethlisberger threw to wide receiver McLeod through a little dying quail of a of a pass over the middle of the field. Nothing on it at all. McLeod catches it at his ankles, uh, stands up and and uh, bifurcates Jefferson and Board there who were in coverage in that middle zone and got the first down. Yes, I, I I put that on board. I put that on board. Um, it's just a position that linebacker position should be a one. Well, we have many, but it's a it's a position we really need to upgrade. Um, we need, you know, if not a safety in that spot, which I'm sure you would be in favor of a, a linebacker who can really cover. Because we I mean we're talking about you. You want to add to the turnovers? How about some tip balls at the second level? Uh, sure. And 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 on that one though, I mean, it was Jefferson and and Board were both there, but he was passing into into Board zone first. And for a player of the experience of Chris Board, who has been in that position numerous times, I was disappointed in the uh, in in his performance on that play. He was just late. He was just a second late, and that's all it takes. I mean, it's, he's the closing player, so he's the one where more responsibility is. And and so, Board is not a rookie. He's a fifth year. He's a no. He's a fourth year player. Re- restricted free agent this year, so he got tendered. Uh, that's enough experience in this league that he needs to be starting to impact pass plays over the middle of the field, in particularly those between level two and three. But he's also got to got to be able to read the quarterback better and close those windows faster. And I think that's what you're alluding to here in terms of of what he should have been able to do. If he if he can't close the window, he's got to at least make Roethlisberger and McLeod pay for the pass the, the pass being low and being in a position to tackle more quickly. And to me, it comes back to eyes. And that's one thing that's really important to me at really every level of the defense, but especially, uh, you know, in, in the second or in coverage. Uh, in the run game, sometimes you get guys with their heads down and they lose track of the ball. And, it, it you know, they're closing the gap, so it's not that big of a deal. But Chris Board doesn't have to be Usain Bolt to make that play. Uh, he just has to see it clearly. You know where the sticks are. You know how big of a down it, uh, a big of the down it is. Just to do your job and be aware of what's around you. And yeah, I mean, this late into Chris Board's career uh, really should be the prime of his career. That's a play I expect him to make. 
Let's, let's talk about that a little more in terms of something you said earlier, because you mentioned that uh, you could have a linebacker or a safety on that field in that, in that situation. In, against this team on fourth and eight, I don't see any way in hell you don't want anything but a safety on that play. You obviously don't want Chris Board because he's not really a good coverage player. He's, he's, he gives you a little bit of speed. He can rush the passer a little bit. He gives you a little bit of flexibility in terms of what he can do, but he's not a good coverage player. Nobody would mistake him for that. In fact, I'm not even sure Queen isn't less of a liability on that play than Chris Board. But without really getting into that, my, my theory always on getting a linebacker instead of, an, uh, instead of your weak side guy on the field on third down for the dime is that your third best coverage safety you have two start safeties on the field to start with, but your third best coverage safety is almost always a better cover guy than your second best coverage inside linebacker. You know, you talked about what a big ask it is to find an inside linebacker who can cover. Ravens haven't been able to find one for years. LJ Fort's the closest they have, and Bynes makes some makes some savvy plays, I think, on the football on first and second down, but I wouldn't want him on the field on third down either. No, no. And it showed in this game. And, you know, I was even taking it to another level where I was looking at the snaps for Brandon Williams and and Justin Ellis in a game like this, where the Steelers were unsuccessful. And, you know, late in the game, they pretty much had to throw the ball. Uh, They weren't getting anything on the ground. To why are we? I added up their percentages each, and it's it would be a 1.0 something on Ken's scale where we had one plus nose tackle average on each. Well, where, you know, McPhee was on the field in sub packages, but why are we going that heavy on defense when we're stopping the run like we were and when they're in obvious passing situations? Give me more Calais Campbell. Why is Matabike not playing as much? I think he was in the 40% snaps. Uh, you know, I, I, we, we needed to get lighter, especially in this game. We needed a light, fast coverage type of unit especially late in this game. Well, I, I, I will say I think Williams was about the best pass rusher in this game too, but we can it talk was. a little bit about that. So, um, it, But I, I agree. But Williams, just a great game going out. We'll come back to that in a, in a minute. But, uh, but I really want the Ravens to, to go into next year. They've got a lot of options at safety right now and a lot of good ones. So they've got to decide whether they can get Deshaun Elliott back. And, and it may be that there's not a big market for Deshaun Elliott. He's been hurt a lot. You know, three significant injuries in four seasons. He's been a good player when he's been able to play. And, uh, you know, maybe he's a guy that the Ravens can get back. If they get him back at two years, four or five million dollars, I think they'd be crazy not to do it. It, uh, it might cost more than that. And then they're going to really have to start to think about it. But he's at least the kind of player you give a support offer to, even though your safety core is one of the deepest groups. So your main consideration, I think, at safety is, do you really want to draft the next Baltimore Ravens free safety? And when you do that, then you have to make that spot for him, and you probably have to wave goodbye to Deshaun Elliott. I personally, I think that's the way the Ravens will end up needing to go, but doesn't mean that Deshaun Elliott couldn't be a good pickup after the draft if they don't get exactly what they want in a free safety. If they get a first or second round free safety, they're probably going with him. If they get a, a fifth round free safety, who they think has a lot of developmental upside, then I think you can you can bring back Elliott without having a, a second thought about it, play with five safeties all year, and have a good five to make three or here's the here's the tickler five to make four situations so you can play the quarter with four safeties and then you could get your inside linebackers off the field yes i you know and in fact i'm i'm not even sure how interested i am in elliot just because of the availability so maybe you and i split on that a little bit but uh you know i would not i wouldn't be against signing uh 
one of these big name free safeties too. Uh, someone who you can count on to play 16 games and, so and, and that kind of thing. No, not Earl. Not Earl. I, <laughs> although, you know, Earl might come cheap. We're already paying him $10 million, So, uh, But, yes, uh, no, I'm looking at, uh, obviously, Jesse Bates, the Honey Badger, Justin mm-hmm. Reed. There are some big names out there. Who knows if they want to leave their situations. But to just give yourself a true free safety and say, hey, we can play a ton of dime. You know, we can play a ton of three safeties. Uh, we can match up Brandon Stevens against tight ends if we want. We'll have Chuck with the green dot. And you know what? We'll have an extra free safety and Geno Stone that can that can rotate in there. Uh, free safety is not a position or a high draft pick. Is not a position that I'm, I'm I'm trying to mess around with, the safety position at all. Right. If, we only, if we only have three linebackers active uh, or we're relying on three linebackers, but we have five safeties, that's a problem. I, I don't look at that as an issue, I would say. Right. They've been they've been playing a lot this year with five inside linebackers active, and it hasn't made any sense. I mean, Malik Harrison's only playing special teams. He's played one snap since week seven on defense. Uh, that, that hasn't made any sense to me. Right. I'd like eight. to invert those numbers, Ken. I'd, I'd like <laughs> it to be the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what the Ravens can't afford to do, I don't think, in 2022 is to have one or two guys who is a safety only and not a defensive player. And Anthony Venus had a great run here. And Richards was a valuable player when he was here. And other players like Justin Bethel were valuable for their relatively brief time in Baltimore. But the, but the time has passed where a team that really wants to focus on using safeties in 7 and 60B alignments uh, can afford to have a non-defensive safety on the roster. There's other positions like Christian Welch. If he never gets on the field inside linebacker, but he plays great special teams, I'm okay with that. But I'm not okay with, with having – four safeties at plus one other who really only play special teams. It's too important a position and you're asking them to do a lot. And that's one of the things, uh, off season focus, so, you know, players like Tavon players like Jimmy players with Deshaun. That's why I even bring up Elliot in that conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm just not willing to take the gamble. Um, injuries are hard enough to predict, but when you have a history like that, those are player three players that we were counting on this year in a stacked roster who have injury history. So I, I, get, I want younger. I want a more aggressive. I want more speed. And mm-hmm. to me, that starts at the safety position. Let's get some tacklers and some ball hawks out there on the field. Yeah, I completely agree. So uh, I, I think also it will maximize Chuck Clark to get him playing more robber and more in the box and dime packages to, to, to have what he can do. He's, he's not maximized on the back end playing either split or single high. And I, I really, I prefer him used closer to the line of scrimmage more often. He can he can probably prevent more pass breakdowns. He has really good sense of where the ball is going that I don't think Baltimore fans realize as much. And we think of him more as a, as a dropped interception guy, which is very unfair given you know what he's done for this defense uh, you know since he got here. But uh, I, I, I think they will maximize his usage. And really in 2019, when he probably had his best year, it was because he was playing a lot of that dime role. The Ravens played 42% dime. And he was up there in the box at weak side linebacker effectively on those snaps. Totally agree. I don't have anything to add to that, Ken. But beautifully stated, Chuck is a chess piece, and we should treat him as that instead of him having to hold down the defense for sure. 
All right, great. Um, let's talk uh, some packages in this game. I'm going to be pretty brief on this, but uh, the base defense uh, really gives you an idea. They played it 13 times. They Steelers played surprisingly much 12 and 21 compared to recent games with Roethlisberger and this spread offense and trying to put four receivers on the field with a tight end sometimes when they had Ebron, I guess it was last year. Um, and you know, we went to the game. That was the that was the COVID game we both went to. Yes, sir. So, it, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say they used a lot of Gentry in this game, yeah. and uh, and Fryermuth and uh, Radar. They talk, you know, they targeted them too. The Pittsburgh tight ends, ten catches, fourteen targets, ninety two yards. So that was uh, that was pretty much the base of their pass attack. Yeah, right there, getting you know six and a half yards per pass play is <laughs> is the base of their pass attack. It's actually kind of funny. But yes, sir. Yes, we we lived through the Flacco era, the end of the Flacco era, where there were a lot of short passes as well. Of course, um, uh, Martin Dale deployed the base defense thirteen times. Uh, the run was really spectacular: nine runs for thirty yards, three point three yards per carry, which was actually above what they got for the whole game. Uh, but they had four pass plays for sixty three yards on those plays. So kind of interesting that the, that the the Steelers were telegraphing the run based on their 12 and 21 play um, more than you would expect them to, but they, they really kind of banged their head on the wall. And it wouldn't surprise me if Steelers fans are upset at Matt Canada for the way that was handled. Uh, I haven't, I haven't read anything on their boards. I haven't had time to yet in terms of, of what's going on, but um, they should, I mean, the play selection based on the Steelers offensive package was very much run heavy with heavy sets. And then especially compare that to the personnel on defense of the Ravens. It just didn't make much sense to me either. I guess that they, you know, I'm guessing weather was a factor that they were looking at this cold rainy day and wanted to put their tight ends in there. But I mean, you look at the other side of the field and the Ravens defense, they ended the year number one in rush yards allowed. And it's wasn't just volume based yards per carry. Ken, I've been tracking that all season on my weekly shows. Ravens are top five. I think they were like third, ended up third or fourth in the league. So you're not running the ball on the Ravens. You saw what we did to Nick Chubb and, and Kareem Hunt. Um, so, yeah, puzzling that the Steelers, instead of targeting Westry and Jimmy Smith, would target Brandon Williams, Calais Campbell, Matabike, and the rest of those big guys up on the line. Now, a lot of teams like to run out of 11 personnel, and this was something the Steelers certainly could have done. The Steelers big in terms of running out of 11 personnel, not getting heavy in past years. Uh, but they they had 30 standard nickel snaps. Those were the standard response to 11 personnel. So, you know, the vast majority of those snaps, there might have been a couple 12s fit in there, but it's going to be mostly opponent 11s that they've got on the field. Um, they had 13 runs for 31 yards, 2.4 yards per carry, and 17 passes for 59 yards, 3.5 yards per play. I don't think things could have worked out much better for Wink Martindale based on on his response to the nickel to 11 personnel. I mean, the, the defense was good in this game, Ken. Just overall, it was, a, it was a good defensive performance. Maybe some of that has to do with Pittsburgh's choices. And I think that them having, uh, you know, their backup center and was it left guard? They were down in the depth chart for left guard. Maybe that was another reason they wanted to go heavy. But yes, nickel defense, right on the money for the Ravens in this game. Yeah. And then they, they play this jumbo big nickel, which they just introduced really in the last couple of weeks. And I'm trying to remember if it was two weeks ago or one week ago they did this. I think it was against the Rams because the Rams were playing a fair amount of 12. And, and we got some of that from the Steelers as well. But rather than put a, a standard nickel in the field, which would have had a third cornerback in the slot, 
you know, the Ravens understand their own weaknesses in terms of their third cornerback, put a third safety on the field to cover the tight end, which, which I thought worked pretty well. That was the jumbo nickel. Um, and they, they used only one inside linebacker and continue to have three defensive linemen on those plays. So when the Steelers are giving you, again, a sense that they might be running the football, the Steelers are maintaining, uh, Ravens are maintaining their heaviness, not only on the defensive line, but also in terms of the defensive backfield uh, with the extra safety. And they give up an inside linebacker on it, which is, which is a, a spot where uh, I guess they felt like they could make the sacrifice. Uh, Queen was in there over Bynes on those plays. And Geno Stone, of course, I think that his play, he's hes a player that has won me over this year for sure. I know uh, he was one of your favorites. And, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, before the season we were talking and I'm like, I don't know, Ken, I just don't see it. But, you know, the more you watch him play, his angles are really good. I mean, he had some he had a missed tackle yesterday, maybe at least one or two. But when you're looking at someone who can communicate his communication really impressed me uh you see him given the directions whereas a guy like brandon stevens is constantly looking for directions and all the way up into the snap but when gino stone is in the game i feel a sense of calm as a fan watching knowing that he'll be in the right spot and stuff will be on and of course he was rewarded this game uh with the interception that he got you know, it's a great point. I got. I guess I got two points that I want to I want to respond to on this. The first is that Geno Stone is a very natural defensive kind of captain, and that's why he got the green dot when Clark was out. They didn't give it to Stevens. Stevens had been on the field a lot more. He'd been the second safety. He was an obvious guy to be there, but they gave it to Stone. In fact, they did. They tried to not make a big deal of it beforehand because Harbaugh wouldn't announce it beforehand. Well, we're going to see how the practice goes this week, and we're going to, you know, right. but they, they never really intended for it to be anybody but Stone. They know the the characteristics of those players. They know Geno Stone's career at Iowa was one as a defensive leader, and and it made a lot of sense. The other thing I like about Geno Stone playing the back end and, and prospectively in 2022 now as well is that he'll be a guy who can direct the secondary from the back, including those important things about um, coverage switches, you know, banjo coverages and the ability to um, what are the rules going to be on this play for switching your coverage between two stacked receivers or two potentially crossing receivers on one side of the field. It, it really takes more than one safety to do that well. If Chuck Clark is in the middle of the field, he still probably can only do it on one side. He can't go over to the other side, you know, 20 yards away and say, okay, you guys are switching up in this direction if this happens. They got, they got to do that themselves or they got to have a safety who's really watching in terms of his own responsibilities behind them to say, hey, guys, you know, we're doing number two here or, or you know, we're, we're on anchor this time or whatever it might be to the secret word to uh, the code word to, to tell how the coverage switch is going to work um I, I want that in a safety behind i do not feel like brandon stevens is that guy at all in terms of calling it from the back end me me, me either and it, that's part of the reason i'm pretty uh pretty hell-bent on adding a adding to that safety room and uh you know geno stone himself gives you a lot of security moving forward to where if you if you want Brandon Stevens to be a guy who covers tight ends or when you bring him in, you have Geno Stone that can play the back end and can hold that down. So uh, just a, a really, I would say, a great football player, um, not the greatest athlete, but a great football player in Geno mm-hmm. Stone. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you you would like better speed on the back end, but the other th- the point I was going to make is that he still has that center fielder's instinct. That he's you mentioned angles. I think what's important is space. Is that he and, and it's angle related, obviously, but he's moving to a spot behind the receiver to provide bracket coverage. Whereas 
Deshaun Elliott, when he's banging back there, is a heat-seeking missile looking to move through the midsection and ribs of that player. That sounds good, but it's not really good for turnovers. You really want a guy, a more measured player on the back end, who's going to be set up to get interceptions. And a guy like Stone understands overthrows are a big opportunity and tip balls are a big opportunity. And he can, he can make a play on either. We saw him have two interceptions in the preseason or one game, one of each of that type. We saw him in this game have perfect move to the football, move to the high point of the football, interception, interception made. And it was, was just outstanding bracket coverage on the play, and he knew exactly when to go for the football. I, I wanted that on the back end. It was, it's an old adage. It's easier to move forward than it is backwards, and it's a baseball term. But Gino does that. He stays back, stays back, and you can see on the interception, he had a nice, what I refer to all the time as a banana angle working, saw that there was an opportunity for him to actually make the interception. And like I said, easier to move forward than it is backward. Just flatten that angle and was right there at the ball. Whereas Deshaun, he is, I mean, I really feel like if Deshaun was a full-time strong safety, take him away from all that stuff as much as you can. I mean, sure, you can play too Mm -hmm. deep and that kind of thing. That that's his best position. Him and Chuck play the same position. So, um, you know, addressing a true free safety is part of the reason that I'm not really all that, keen on bringing Deshaun back that and his injury history just give me a clean slate you have Geno Stone there to back it up you want to make a uh, early round pick or a big signing pair them with Stone have Chuck Clark there you go I mean that that would really really help uh, you know eyes instincts and the turnover department for this defense yeah outstanding outstanding way you stated it there and and that's I, I think if I were to say that, I think that's probably the best argument for not signing Deshaun Elliott at any price. But I think there will be a price where the Ravens will say, "We can't not do this." You know, I'd you could have you could keep six safeties on the roster if they want to be a committed quarter team. You know, because they're, they're going to want then you know six to make four. They can make a larger uh, uh, portion of their special teams unit be these extra safeties. I mean, I think it would make a lot of sense. Um, Tony Jefferson might or might not be the be the guy who's on the bubble in that situation. But we're already acting. I mean, I don't know. We're already acting, but a lot of people are acting as if Tony Jefferson's on the 2022 roster. Love to have him. I think he'd be. He's. He's not done defensively. I think we've seen that clearly from this year. He's a little bit younger than a player like Levine, uh, who has been a great Raven. I mean, I almost feel like Anthony Levine ought to be in the ring of honor for what he's done. I don't really mean that. So stop. Don't send me tweets or whatever to to beat on me for that. But Anthony Levine has been a very special player. There's there's another level that that, um, maybe is just below Kelly Gregg, who's kind of on the fringe of the ring ring of honor. And, you know, other players like Sam Cook, who probably will never get there, but but deserve to be recognized for, for their contributions to Ravens history. I just like Anthony Levine as the, his, uh, his makeup, his personal makeup, his background story. And, you know, he had some good times on the defense. It was just brief, yep. you know, but what, what he does on special teams, leadership, you, you know, you, you catch some of it on these Ravens wires or you see it when you, they show some training camp practices. The man is a mentor uh, and they, they don't call him co-cap for, for nothing. I mean, I respect a lot of respect for him. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the ultimate in outrageous analogies and say his career is a little bit like Muhammad Ali's in terms of he lost his prime three prime years to uh, uh, Ali lost it to, to to being suspended effectively but 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 Levine lost them 
because Dean Pease was the defensive coordinator didn't believe in the dime defense. Right. <laughs> and Levine effectively lost these prime years of his career. And then he finally got a good chance in 17 a little bit and then in 18 a lot to play the dime. And he was the best dime in Ravens history in 2018. And, you know, then it got get eclipsed in the next year by Clark. But still, it was a fantastic individual year by Levine in 2018. Yeah. And he'll tell you about it, too. He, he came up big in that last game. <laughs> yeah, the last game, the game at Pittsburgh, he won for them. He had three consecutive drive-ending passes defensed in the game at Pittsburgh that year in the fourth quarter. So, That's how I'll remember him. That's yeah. definitely what uh, the first thing will come to mind with Andy, Anthony Levine. But, yeah, nothing but respect. I don't, you know, at this point in his career, I agree with you, Ken. We, we really need to get younger and, and find the next solution for guys like Levine, for guys even like a Sam Cook. I mean, it's it's about time you could save some money. Um, it's just a little bit of money, but still, it's it's the, every penny counts. And this team needs to get younger, in my opinion. They do need to get longer, younger in a lot of places. The defensive line being a big one, and and they're gonna they're, they will have to address that. So whether Campbell comes back on a one year deal or Williams comes back on a one year deal, it, it should be for a lot less money. Um, Campbell, you know, I, I, I don't know what they would pay him on a one-year deal. I, I don't even know if he would be amenable to it because most players like to go out with a two-year deal and spread their signing bonuses over two years, make some money, and then and then be allowed into retirement. If it's Williams, I, I don't think he's going to get that kind of a sweetheart deal. If it's Campbell, he might. Uh, Campbell's been an awfully good player this year. In Williams' case, um, I think he might sign for, you know, if, he, if they could get him for one year, three million, kind of Jimmy Smith money. That would kind of make sense to me if they if they had to pay five million for him. I think I got to sit wave goodbye, even though he'd be a good transition to a younger defensive line that would allow you to take two years to make that move instead of having to make more draft picks this year at the position. Agreed. And it was nice to see Brandon uh, possibly in his last game just have a great game. It, it was. Can we, I, I'm going to defer that discussion for just a second, even though normally I like to let the show grow organically. But let's talk the pass rush for just a second. The, the, it wasn't like the Ravens did a terrible job of getting pressure in this game. Roethlisberger had 12 of 45 dropbacks where he had ample time and space. That's 27%. That's a bit, little bit lower than what I would call normal in the 30 to 33% range. But he also had 17 ball out quicks. Now, we expect that from Ben Roethlisberger. They him to have a high percentage of balls to get out quickly. The Ravens still generated 36% pressure within three seconds. A lot of that was a function of a very poor Pittsburgh offensive line getting bulled into the cone a lot of the day, and, uh, and, and that was nice. But uh, uh, Roethlisberger had that inverted game. I mentioned 5.4 yards per play with ATS, so they did have one inter- and, and one interception. Ball out quick. Well, a lot of those balls are going to the outside. He was 14 of 17 on those throws, but only 3.4 yards per play. Yep, there you go. That's the Pittsburgh offense. It's almost hard to like uh, compare – defensive performances against the Steelers compared to other teams. Like the, the numbers just don't add up just because of their method of attack under an elderly uh, Ben Roethlisberger this last year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it is what it is, but it's, it's strange that if, if people were breaking it down in terms of how these plays were successful and not, and I'm sure there are Steelers fans because it's an educated fan base. They have a lot of guys who are like me or like you who are, who are, uh, you know, looking at a lot of film, they're they're talking Steelers football because they love it, and they'd be pissed off by this kind of a pass attack. Uh, when he was pressured, and this was where it really hurt. Eleven of fifteen for one hundred and ten yards. Um, that's six and a half. I'm wrong. That's seven. 
Uh, no, we had a sack in there. That's why. Okay. So, so it was six and a half yards per play. It ended up being, but 11 of 15 for 110 yards on 16 plays for 110 yards uh, net. Um, so that doesn't seem like a great number. You can certainly win a football game when you give up six and a half yards per, per pass, but you can't usually win a football game where you pressure the quarterback and give up six and a half yards per pass. Yes. That was in comp- six and a half yards compared to what else they were getting. It was, yeah, that, that was, that, that's a great, it, it might as well have been 10 yards compared to, uh, you know, what the, the rest of how they, how they split that out. So um, yes, yes. It, it was just an odd game. And he said, these numbers just, a lot of times when you play Pittsburgh, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't look like a normal game. Last year, they really laid off the numbers on Ben Roethlisberger, particularly in the home game at Baltimore. We went to they they had a uh, they just they just laid off the numbers. In this game, they they rushed four or fewer thirty one times. Uh, the the primary was the four, of course, twenty nine plays for one hundred sixty eight yards, five point eight yards per play. That was actually the best of any breakdown that where they had a meaningful number of, of opportunities for the Steelers. They did turn the ball over against a four-man uh, uh, backfield. Uh, sorry, four-man uh, uh, pass rush. But with five-plus, they had 14 plays for 57 yards. That's only 4.1 yards per pass when they blitzed the quarterback, and they blitzed the quarterback almost a third of the time. Now, that's not a lot by Ravens standards, but it's a lot by against Roethlisberger standards. Because he gets the ball out quick, and there's really no use. You want to have tacklers instead of uh, throwing the house at them. So it all makes sense. There you go. Um, uh, Martindale, who is a big proponent of off-ball blitzes, had only four called the entire day. That's four on 45 plays, .09 per pass play. All individuals, sometimes he'll send two. Um, a lot of those those off-ball blitzes, they don't even have to be sacrifices in coverage, not the way we think of them, because they can be zone blitzes where you drop an edge defender on one side and, and bring, say, the slot corner or whatever from the other side, and you kind of rotate your coverage scheme around inside that box. Um, but they didn't really even do much of that. They're, they're, they're very obviously – they wanted to simplify things for, a, for an inexperienced secondary with Westry and Seymour – uh, playing a fair number of snaps in this game, and Stevens even on the outside as well. Um, that was that was a problem. Not to mention the inexperienced inside linebackers in terms of coverage that the Ravens are, are putting on the field. And Wake's come under a lot of fire, I think, from fans this year. Just my general feel of talking to people. But you know, I'll take up for him in the fact that yeah, the you know finishing last and passing in. In, in, in every category uh, is, is a bad look, but I will give Wink credit for switching up what he likes to do, mm-hmm. not being stubborn, just trying. He was trying, he, you know, he switched up his, his uh, mixing up his blitzes, how he blitzed, how many times he stunts. I mean, there, there was really uh, a commitment to him to try to see what worked all year. So I appreciate that. Tremendous. Um uh, game plan variation by quarterback, by offense that he faced. Yes. And, and and I think that's really the indicator. None of these guys, neither Roman nor Wink deserves to be fired, in my opinion. And and to look at this Ravens team and the literal amount, lack of talent, both sides of the ball. I mean, they lack defensive playmakers all over the place. Uh, they're injured as hell in the secondary, and they lost Humphrey, lost Peters. That's, that's most of their playmakers right there. But they also did, you know, they had Queens struggling early in the season. The defensive line had the Monstars, uh, various levels of nicked up pretty much all year. Uh, the the edge rushers had had problems with injuries that, that that came and went. Although that was a that was a, a relative position of strength. Um, it's just to me, it's it's crazy 
to blame Wink for, for this going on, or Roman for that matter, for what went wrong with the offensive line and running backs. Yes, yeah, so I'll defend Wink in, in, in this offseason for sure. Roman, you know, that's a, that's a little bit deeper discussion for me as far as just stylistically what I'd like to see going forward. But uh, as far as Wink's concerned, he runs the same defense that has been very effective for this franchise over the years. He runs it well. And then seeing, like I said, that he wasn't just ramming his head into a brick wall. He wasn't definition of insanity. He was trying with the uh, group that you described there, uh, just doing everything he could to match up against the team he was facing through the good and the bad decisions by Wink. He really, uh, he really showed off some versatility, I think in his plans of attack. Yeah. Well, happy, happy with the way it worked out. Wink has run very different. I think, package-based schemes for these last three years. And they've been very dependent on game situation and who, they, who we had on the team. But Personnel, yeah. Yeah, we look back to 2019, they played all that dime. I mean, they haven't come close, but some of that was related to the lead they had in those games. And then when they had when they had the lead with the dime, Wink wasn't afraid to dial up everybody, put four outside linebackers on the field, play that race car package 13.2% of the time, which was more in 2019 than they played the base defense, only 10.5% of the time. So you know, we, we saw, we've seen things from him that I think have really been outstanding in terms of coming up with extreme defensive packages for extreme situations where I think Pease had much more of a hesitation to do that. Even though, you know, Pease, respective defensive coach, been around for a long time. Um, he doesn't rank up there with Wink in terms of the all-time defensive coordinators for the Ravens because Wink is just more willing to take chances on extreme uh, package uh, and alignment and, and pass rush game. Absolutely. And I'm not sure Wink uh, will garner attention as a head coach, and I'd be more than happy to have him back, and it would make me feel uh, pretty good because you just give this man a little bit more talent. And, uh, you know, I know that fans are frustrated because our outside linebackers don't get as many sacks under Wink, but we'll have those games where safeties get sacks, corners get sacks. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a party for everybody, and it makes it really difficult for offenses to figure out who's doing what, where. And uh, you get a bunch of new players, young players in this draft. Even the, you know the fourth rounders that we have and third rounders that we have, uh, there'll be a lot of players who have strengths, NFL strengths that Wink at his disposal. I have confidence that he'll use that uh, to his advantage. Okay, great point there. So when you say they have strengths, they have NFL strengths, what you mean is they're limited in some ways, but they have very specific things, and that's where Wink will find a way to use what they do well and minimize what they don't do well. Yes, sir. Absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly what thank you, Ken. I could completely agree with that statement, by the way. Completely agree. Um, let's move on. This is a part of the show where we talk individual players from this game. And, you know, obviously you can tell we're talking less about this game probably, although there is some of it that we're really talking about 2022 in a lot of ways. But uh, take us through, who would you like to talk about? You know, uh, Brandon Williams, uh, it was the first guy that came to mind. Uh, just his overall pressure. And, and still, when he goes up against a center that is either inexperienced or undersized, yep. <laughs> he, is, he is going to move that man. You're going to still have to double team him. So we've saw, we've seen Brandon get pushed around more this year than usual. And maybe that has to do with stuff that we don't know about injuries, that kind of thing. But uh, Brandon Williams will still move his man um, and control things in the middle. A number of splash plays for Brandon in this game. Just absolutely uh, 
a, a great player. Uh, one that I do hope, you know, that they make a decision between, say, him and Ellis uh, at the same price. Say, hey, Brandon, we can get a veteran nose tackle for this much. We'd rather have you, buddy. Let's finish this thing out together. And I wouldn't have any problem with that. Uh, I think that Brandon gets a lot of grief for the money that he made, not his play on the field and his positional value. Uh, but his play on the field was excellent yesterday. Yeah, it was it was by far his best game of the season. He's had a tough year. Uh, J.C. Hassenauer was a great final opponent for Brandon Williams. If this is his final game in Baltimore, he went out very strong, played the run exceptionally well, but he got great push. I've got his notes in, in the uh, full set of notes for him that I took. Uh, five of them are uh, beating Hassenauer, mostly by bulls or bowling, then shedding him. And then the other two are beating LeGlue, uh, the uh, – the left guard, I think, right? Left guard, 77. The glue, yes. Yeah. So uh, definitely not a level competition there that, that, no. that he's facing, but still an impressive set of results against a heated opponent. And, and he was a big part of a lot of uh, short run plays and a lot of the Ravens run success. I'll go on. I'll talk about another player. Josh Bynes had a big game in this in this last one. Uh, number of plays. Again, I've got those out in the article. I'm not going to name them one at a time here, but a lot of good uh, getting to the gap in the run play in the run game. And, uh, and making use of that. He did some things in terms of making quick tackles on the pass game, particularly against the tight end Gentry. Um, did a nice job tackling Chase Claypool in space. Uh, it, it, he converted the play. It was I think it was a second and two, but it went for a two-yard gain. They weren't going to stop him, but it could have been a big play. And, and that's, the, that's this kind of small win that, that you don't really think of, but you could have lost 10 extra yards there, and instead he takes him down for just a two-yard gain. Good play. Uh, got a nice pressure uh, late in overtime on Ben Roethlisberger that was an incomplete pass, one of the few times the Ravens got pressure, and it really mattered in this game. Uh, I cannot imagine a world where the Ravens do not want him back next year. He's just He brings too much to this defense, and he solidified it twice in the last three years to such a degree. I, I don't see them saying goodbye to him permanently. I don't either. And there's a quote here uh, that I did not have, but he basically said, y'all going to have to kick me out the door. I'm here for you. Um, So, yes, I I can see Bynes. uh, Sorry for not having that quote, Ken, but I can see Bynes coming back on this team. Uh, I I don't see any scenario in which he wouldn't. I mean, because if you don't have him, he's not sought after by other teams. He means more to the Ravens than any other team. So I I can see him being on this team next year. I wanted to talk about his running mate and Patrick Queen, though. When we continue continue to see the same thing for Patrick Queen as far as him being able to shoot the gap with timing, make plays once a game. Uh, you know, he missed a tackle, quote unquote, on Najee Harris, I believe it was, when he was still in the game at first. Uh, Bowser came in, cleaned it up, and got right. the tackle for loss. Um, but we it's also a high value missed tackle. Is high value point missed. You're making. Yeah, yes, he, sir. he turned him completely 360 degree turnaround, but it will go down as a missed tackle on uh, on various sources, and and it was a high value missed tackle. Absolutely. And and he's going to do that in the running game once or twice a game. He's going to shoot his shot and he's going to hit it. And we've also seen that be a means for him uh, as not a physical player for him to close ground and turn it into the result of a physical player. In other words, a guy who is extremely physical will take that guard and drive him back into the lane. Well, Patrick Queen doesn't have the physical ability to do that most of the time. But when he bum rushes the line of scrimmage beforehand, you get the same result. The guard meets him in about the same spot as uh, someone who would bully the guard in that position. But, you know, I'm looking in this overtime, there was one play. uh, It was when Ferguson couldn't quite seal the edge. 
uh, Jimmy took a bad angle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, where's your inside linebacker? Well, Patrick Queen was squared up and way away from the play uh, was a turning point in this game. So when you're talking about shedding blocks, when you're talking about still, he has those moments when it's, when you know you can move him to weak side linebacker, but when they run to the weak side, all of a sudden he's he's at the point of attack. He's the mic. <laughs> he's the mic. So um, you know you can try to move him away from the mic position, but he's going to be put in that several times a game. So let's not relax on Patrick Queen. Um, a lot of people are high on him. Oh, his career is turned around, but the still still the same issues, strengths, and weaknesses exist, and he has got to get better at that. He's just too good of an athlete to keep him off the field too much. So we're going to need Patrick to to keep stay on his game and and not get too comfortable. Yeah, I am. Here's my question for you for this offseason. because this is what I want to know about Patrick Queen. It's I think you and I would both agree sitting down on this that Patrick Queen needs position specific coaching this offseason, not a generalized workout regime. He doesn't want to get himself down two percent lower in body fat from probably what six percent now. Uh, it, you know he he needs to get him. He needs to get position specific coaching on how to play inside linebacker, whichever side he's going to play. What is the one? specific thing you want him to be doing better in 2022 that he did better this year? And we'll each pick one. For me, I would have to say you don't have to be the strongest player or longest player to be able to shed a block. And that is the main thing. It, 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 you know, if, if you, if you cause a pile, uh, that is, is okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Getting pushed back and playing patty cake with your hands and trying to get position is the worst thing you can do. Either, you know, you can't cut the man, but at least cause a pile, go low, be more physical. To me, it's a mentality, Ken. And uh, I think that Patrick Queen just comes off to me, amateur psychologist, as a man that needs tough love. He knows he's a good person. He's a good teammate. He brings a lot of good energy. But what did he say? Well, I had to sulk for a little while before I got my act together. And I'm saying, well, you don't have it together. He needs someone on his butt, an old school type coach to keep him grounded. It's just, you know, I like him. I think he's a very good player. He comes off as a really nice guy. But when he steps on that field, he has got to be willing to do the dirty work mentality and shedding blocks. I, I, I agree with that. I'm going to come up with another thing for you, but you're right about this. this the self-confidence is what really strikes me. First of all, the, good, the really good football players, they don't give a rat's ass what the media is saying about them, what people like you and me are saying about them. They go out and they, they want to play good football and play hard, and uh, they don't mind necessarily talking about it or even getting specific about it under the right circumstances, but they, they want to, you know, they're, they're not as concerned about what other people are saying. Patrick Queen strikes me as somebody who's been really hurt by what's been said about him around this. And, and he's not, uh, I, I don't think he's taken to heart enough just how serious as this is. And being an underachiever, and, and uh, people would know this from, from me who knew me in high school, being a, just an unbelievable underachiever at that time, uh, I, 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 you know, I would look for things to congratulate myself for in terms of I did a little bit better on this test. When, you know, it needed a complete rebuilding of effort to, to, to figure out how, you know, I was going to turn my, uh, my academic life around. Uh, it, it, to me, this is a, this is a, uh, a, a really a problem with confidence in the case of Queen. I, I'm going to give you the other big thing, though, that I think he needs to learn is he needs to work with somebody else 
on the pass game reading off the line of scrimmage, not necessarily reading the quarterback, although that would be great. If you could do that at all, that would be great. But to read the pass game off the line of scrimmage and understand what possible route combinations are implied by the way that the the, the, the other team is, is uh, lining up. Now, that's a complex thing. It's something you ask of a second, third, fourth year inside linebacker. Queen is at that point this year. Uh, you know, he, he really was at that point this last year, but, uh, you know, he had, you know, we're making, he's still making excuses for the guy and he's missed all this time and blah, blah, blah. Well, he's shown some other flashes. Let's, let's pick up a very key element, which will actually keep him on the field much more. And that is being some sort of a valuable tool in pass defense instead of a, a guy who you really have to worry about as being targeted on every play. And it's so specific to that, Ken. I know you mentioned it on your show a, a lot, being aware of what's going on behind you. But when he is manned up or when things are in front of him or he can chase someone down to the sideline, he's lights out. He's one of the better linebackers, especially chasing to the sideline and blitzing. He's great. I, I like his sideline activity. I think his recognition is still slow. I compare it to, to Bynes or whatever. I think he lets the running back get too far removed. Now, he may be saying some of that may be I've got the speed and the makeup speed to get by this, but I don't think he does it all, all the time. I don't think he sees the lineman on that either. Like the play I was talking about when I brought yeah. him up, there's no way a guy with P- Patrick Queen's f- physical ability and speed should be walled off and letting a running back run down the sideline. I don't care if the cornerback takes a bad angle or not. Uh, he was strung out to the side, strung out laterally enough where a guy like Patrick Queen should have been all over that. And who was it? It was Bynes, I think, coming from a longer distance um, to make that play. So, yeah, I don't think he sees the the linemen as well as others. But, but yeah, Ken, it's just like knowing what's going on behind him is the last thing I'll point I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if that's something that you can expect him to be good at next year. He might be okay but you're talking leaps and bounds to get to where he is now to being, hey, he's pretty good at recognizing what's behind him. Right. Uh, I'll bring up one more player. Justin Matabike, I thought, uh, did some really good things in the run game in this game. And most of my notes I had for him were run notes. He did not have a pressure as I scored it. So right there, that's a, that's not a great thing, you know, that, that he was on the field for some pass plays, didn't, didn't generate any pressure. We've been seeing more of him – being successful at winning one-on-one matchups with quickness versus that versus that uh, guard as as a kind of a natural three tech in that position, uh, the fact that he's able to do this is a good thing, but it's also kind of a limiting factor for the Ravens organizationally. Is the Ravens have some stacked talent at the three tech spot, and he and Broderick Washington have some overlapping uh, skill, and they're also the two youngest guys on the defensive line. Well, otherwise, they don't. Neither of those guys is 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 sized up to play nose tackle. Uh, neither of those guys really has the phys- the size, I would say, to play five tech. Although maybe Washington could adapt to that kind of a role. Uh, but th- they need to find the guys who are specialists now at other positions because of the fact they've got a three tech. And I I still can't say that they have the top three techs in the league, even though Peter King picked. Uh, Matabike to be the defense player of the year this year. Right. No, I, I, I like Matabike at three tech. I've had people uh, tell me that they think he has uh, a future or he could be good at five tech. Personally, I don't, I don't see that as far as the length and the height and the, you know, the Chris Canty and the Brett Urban, yeah. the Calais Campbell type player. He, Matabike is not that physically, uh, but you'd look, 
I do think Broderick can handle that. That's where I'll differ with you. I, I like okay. Broderick at five tech, especially, um, you know, if it's a run play, I don't think he'll ever be a, you know, a pressure, uh, a high pressure guy, but I feel confident as Broderick is say, you know, second on the depth chart as a five tech. Somebody can get you through a month if you needed them to play in heavy snaps. But you, you mentioned Metabike, Broderick, Derek Wolf. All three of those guys are probably best suited at the three tech lined up over that guard, uh, outside shoulder of the guard. Uh, nose tackle is something that we're going to need, and a pure five tech would be just an absolute right. beauty in this draft. So Campbell Campbell gives you whatever you need, frankly, anywhere along the line. He can, he can right. play three, three, five, seven, one on passing downs. He, he, do, he does whatever you need. Um, I, I, Brent Urban is a great comp for what you want out of that five tech position because – Here's the key thing. The five tech is really going away in the NFL because the nickel is the base defense. So you need a guy who's a combination three, five. Yes. And so when you're, when you're in nickel, you got to have a guy who can easily switch between Brent urban was that guy. He, he really did a great job for the Ravens while he's here without a lot of lauding of, of, of playing very well to stop the run in, in both of those situations, played a high percentage of snaps was over 50% of the snaps. I believe in his last year with the Ravens. Maybe it's the, the year previous to that. I'm trying to think now because he got hurt right at the end of the year, and that the, that really hurt his um, uh, free agency value. Guy. Right. Yeah. It was a shame. But, yeah. Uh, so, don't, Matt BK at five tech out of your mind. I'm I'm guessing that's out of your thinking. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, he's he's got exceptional quickness, but he's going to face a lot of tackles, obviously, in that situation, and he's undersized. And I feel like he's just so good at the three tech and we've seen him with these splash plays, especially uh, brought up on my show a bunch of times in these stretch zone, these outside zones, Mm -hmm. the Clevelands, the Tennessees, those guards just like Meta BK still has some issues anchoring. He can still get blown off a spot now and then. But when he is on the attack and he's moving forward, he's too strong. Too too, too fast. quick, too fast for them. You know, once he gets his momentum going, it's there's no stopping him with half of your body. So um, I love him at the three tech. I just think he's better there. Yeah, I think one of the things we've seen, and and you know, you mentioned the the, the really the way they stopped the Browns' offensive line from dominating the game. I mean, Wyatt Teller wasn't a, a frequent uh, highlight from that game, and and Treader and and uh, Betonio were were pretty well stalled out because. The Ravens were getting penetration somewhere along the line. It's almost like it turns into a pass play because if you can win one individual matchup, either get your double team run one by your nose tackle or have your three tech penetrate, that bifurcates the space that the running back has to choose from in terms of cutback lanes. So you get somebody in the backfield, all of a sudden your job for your linebackers and safeties became a lot easier in terms of tracking down that run play and making sure it doesn't get away. It it strikes me as making it very easy on your edge setters. They They can overset that edge and just be extra cautious and make sure that that running back doesn't get outside of them instead of having to play this game of, well, man, I can't let them get outside of me, but I'm going to need to make the tackle too. So they, you know, it really makes it simplifies things for your edge setters when you have a player like Matabike. And, um, you know, who knows? I like, I, I still feel like we need a pure nose tackle on this team, but uh, yeah, five tech is a big one. And, uh, you know, I, I think I feel pretty, good about our three techs with Matabike, with Broderick, with Wolf next year. I feel good at that position, but we, we just need the other two. Yeah, I'm, I'm questioning whether Wolf will play football again, but we'll hmm. we'll see about that. I mean, I, I'm probably more concerned with his situation 
Okay, let me say this. I think there's a there's a lower chance of him returning to play football than there are of any of those really serious injuries for the Ravens. So um, Stanley's injury, I think he's young enough that he will recover to some degree and play football again. I have questions about how good he'll be or if he'll be worth the contract, of course. But in Wolf's case, I, I really think he's a high retirement risk at this point mm. in, his, in his career. So. We'll we'll see how he comes back. Hopefully he's hopefully he's open and honest with the Ravens, so we know we know what we're dealing with. I mean, we already know we need to get yeah. younger on the D line, but still, it'd be one more. You know, preparing without him would add another layer to it for sure. Well, they're they're going to have to try and figure that out. I I think I, he he does not have any um, March bonus to be paid. I don't believe. I think he got all his up front and it's paid out over three years. So uh, the Ravens just have to make the de- the decision at next at training camp next year on whether or not he's going to be cut or not. There so, you go. So we have time. Yeah. But uh, but still, draft wise, you know, I guess you would like to know, or maybe you just add a guy just because you need extra guys too. So. Uh, I, out, outstanding, always have you on the show, and we're an hour and 20, and I, this flies by because I love talking football with you, yeah, Jason. Man. We get great depth into, into these discussions. Tell folks where they can find your stuff, in particular your your YouTube work and anything else you're working on right now. Sure. you know, Feel free to look up my YouTube at huddle.films. Um, I am starting right now, Ken, where I'm doing – I'll have highlights for basically every player. So why I think they're useful and why other people who cover the Ravens have told me that they like it is you can see what a player does well over and over again. It's different than looking at a stat sheet. Uh, you want to know what uh, Marlon Humphrey looks like when he's going right, or you want to look at what Justin Ellis looks like when he's going right. You want to see what Ben Cleveland looks like when he's going right. I will have those highlights done. I'm trying to release about one a day here for the next it's going to take over a month for the, for the next two months. So please check that out. Uh, if you want to a- interact with me on Twitter, obviously I'll huddle it up films on there as well. Uh, I will try to get back to you. And also, Ken, I just wanted to say same thing. I feel bad when I look at the timer and we're on an hour and 20, but um, I just really enjoy uh, talking football with you, buddy. And I really appreciate, I was just talking to somebody the other day about this uh, respect what you give up of yourself to cover this team seven days a week. It's a, uh, it's very much appreciated, very much so. Well, appreciated. Same, same to you, Jason. It's we've got a great community here in terms of of fan analysts, and I, I think it's been a lot of fun uh, to do this. And, and we're finding new ways to interact, including spaces. Recently, I guess you've been yes. might have been involved in that with uh, Garnett. I told him that I, I want to get my ducks in a row for the draft before I come out there because mm-hmm. if somebody says, "Hey, could we take this guy at 14 and he's 20th on my list?" It's going to be a no for me, you know, so I want to get everything straight before I go and speak. But, yes, I'm going to be on those Twitter spaces coming up soon. And because uh, I, I just love talking football. So maybe we'll get on one and we'll get Garnett to be the sergeant that he is and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, control that for us. Can that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a great guy. And you and I are planning already to do a fair amount of off-season content. We've got positional reviews coming up over the next couple of weeks. are going to start and start coming out. And Jason will be doing one of those. Jason's the utility player here because he can handle any of them. I'm letting him uh, be slotted where other people don't want to be because I know he can handle anything at all. And then uh, Jason usually does the uh, the draft big board for our draft show. And so I'm hoping we can we can collaborate on something like that as well. We'll have a lot of fun. We'll have a lot of people on. And uh, if you want to watch the draft with us uh, come the end of April, we'll oh, yeah. uh, enjoy that. My favorite times of the year, other than Sundays or Mondays or whenever they play, it's day two of the draft is my favorite 
followed by day one, followed by day three. So yeah, I love two, day one, two. Three. Okay. I loved I love day two, Ken, because yeah. you always got those guys that slip through the cracks and you got a whole night to think about it. And when you're drafting in the second and third round, you're you're drafting guys to play a role on your team. These aren't shots in the dark. You better get yourself guys who can play some snaps. You know, those role players for Winks, that designated pass rusher even, or, um, you know, your Devin Duvernay's, your Devin Duvernay's of the world, man, that you need somebody that can fill a role. So, yeah, day two, that's my favorite. Okay. I wish I could have been more excited by the Ravens' day two draft picks in recent years, and their twos and threes in particular. But this this could be the year they turn it around. They got five fours also. We'll pick it up, Ken. We got to hit on those, uh, especially. Maybe we'll get ourselves another J.K. Dobbins type impact player at a more impactful position. That would be cool. That would be cool indeed. All right, Jason, uh, we'll we'll catch you next time on the show. Then, other people out there want to tell you if you want to do a film study short. We're restarting those. So whatever your topic is, this is your soapbox. Get on with me. Talk about the Ravens and some topic that you are passionate about. Make it narrow so we can go deep in about 25 to 30 minutes. If you had an idea for a longer show or a series of shows, I'm open to that as well. Contact me on Twitter. DMs are open. Jason, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you, buddy. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.